Welcome to the One in Five of Us Changing the Mental Health Landscape podcast. We are working to stop the stigma and start the conversation about mental health. One in five people will experience a mental health condition, but it takes on average eight to 10 years for someone to seek treatment. Hi, I'm Nancy Eigelmiller, the founder and executive director of One in Five, and I'm thrilled to host this podcast to help educate our community around mental health and wellness and to empower you to start the conversation. And I'm Kayla Wood, the social media specialist at One in Five. Together, we can stop the stigma and start the conversation. You belong here. We belong together. So today we are sitting down and having a conversation with Andrea Summer. Um, on Instagram, you can find her at Andrea Summer Von Allman. We will link to that in the show notes. Don't worry. Um, and she is a singer, songwriter, and vocal coach. And we are going to um, just chat with her about her mental health journey, um, her relationship with faith, um, and what brought her to this position of uh, wanting to talk about like mental health and advocacy. Um, and yeah, we are so excited. Andrea, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, so let's um, let's go ahead and kick this off. Um, we always like to start by asking our guests um, a little bit about your like mental health journey um, and kind of like what got you here. So um, yeah, I'll take Great. it away. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's interesting. I think I would have two different answers to that depending on if, when you asked me that question. If you had asked me um, maybe when I was 22, how's your mental health? I would have been like, <laughs> gold great. I'm so good. Uh, and then you asked me two years ago, I was like, oh no, not, not good. And haven't been good and had, have had seasons of not good my whole life. I just, I just see it now or I'm, I'm more educated now. So, uh, my journey starts, I'd say, I'd say my first bout of depression, like real, you know, lasting a long time, affecting my whole world depression was when I was 13 and that's when my parents were getting divorced. So my life was kind of turning upside down. And so at that time it was very clear to me that it was circumstantial. Like, yeah, of course I'm sad. Of course I think life sucks. Of course I'm angry all the time. Um, that made sense to me. Uh, what I didn't really realize until later was that I had been experiencing um, anxiety since I was young. And I was a super extrovert kid, sociable, high energy, highly creative. Um, but I would occasionally have what I now know are panic attacks, which would wake me up in the night. And I just thought they were bad dreams, but they would last a while as I was awake. Sometimes um, I can I can count many times when we would be I'd be in the car with my family and I would just be looking out the window daydreaming and my daydreaming would be less dreaming and more nightmaring. <laughs> it would be mm -hmm. like I would find myself in the back seat of the car in tears because suddenly I was imagining the you know the the semi crashing into our car and the car flipping and my family being expelled from the car and I'm hovering over like just this vivid, this vivid imagination that would have such a huge emotional effect on me. And, you know, we're driving to the grocery store, you know, <laughs> so I'd always just kind of snap out of it. Thought that was weird. I didn't talk about those things much because they weren't 
taking over my life. They just interrupted on occasion. So, but definitely more depression when my parents were getting divorced. Then right after college, I had another, I'd say two year run of depression. And it was also connected to grief. I had just graduated college and college really, the people I had experienced in college really did become my family. So leaving college and being separate from them and being in a new place, I, it was like losing my family again in some way, you know, it was kind of bringing back unresolved grief, I'm sure. And, but how it looked for me was not that I couldn't get out of bed. It's not that I couldn't eat. It wasn't that I cried all the time. Um, I had a job. I had friends. I had a boyfriend. I was I was involved in church. You know, I had stuff going on and I could function just fine. But what I experienced on a regular basis was what I thought was fear. I was just, I just felt, a, I just felt like something bad was going to happen all the time. And it's kind of funny at the year um, after college, I actually lived with a family because I lived in a different area and I was like, I need somewhere free to live. And so this very sweet family let me live with them for a year. And the wife was a nurse and the husband was a cop. So I literally could not have been in a safer household. Like, I think he kept his like guns in my closet. <laughs> like, like I was in a very safe, safe place. And yet, I remember every single night, um, you know, any sound I just imagined, I just had these, I just imagined danger at all times. And uh, I didn't feel like myself. I would go through the whole day and, and at the end of the day, realize I hadn't thought about God or talked to God. And I would just like cry about it. And I remember, I remember at the time just kind of calling it a, I went back and forth between thinking I'm screwing everything up. Like I'm failing. So I just would go back and forth between like, God is testing me and I'm failing. Um, and, or, or just, I'm something, something terrible is going to happen. And I'm just like waiting for the shoe to drop. And it's in the, in the, I think the Christian world, Christian culture, I'd say in the Christian culture, you know, you'd hear a lot about, you'd hear about those experiences, but a lot of times they could get labeled as like a spiritual desert. You know, everybody goes through a spiritual desert where you're just dry. You're not hearing from God. You feel lost. You know? And so I just kind of believed, like I knew I was grieving college, but I didn't know that I was um, fighting against something that was bigger than me. Uh, so I blamed myself for most of the symptoms. And I, I just thought God is putting me in a desert season and I am failing. Whatever he's trying to teach me, I'm missing it. Whatever way he's trying to grow me, I'm, I'm messing it up. And I was just just used to just used to that way of thinking and feeling enough that in that season of depression i i let it get so much more exaggerated and so much bigger and still didn't necessarily even think to ask for help and can you help me 
is I think a skill that needs to be taught and something that needs to be practiced from early on. And when you're in your preteens and your teenage years and your family's falling apart and relationships are messy and any, I, I just didn't know how to ask for help in anything really. Yeah. Um, my, my kind of MO was like, what else can I handle? What else can I do? What else can I take on? Like I would almost take pride or satisfaction in like, yeah, I can do hard things. I can endure. I can rise up. <laughs> like I, because that seemed like a noble quality to have. Um, that looked like strength to me. And I, I was independent to a fault and I was self-reliant to a fault. And it was simply because I didn't know that things could be better. I didn't know that it wasn't my fault and I didn't know how to ask for help. So eventually that, that season went away that I, it kind of, it lifted, the cloud lifted and, um, you know, I could see color again and taste food again. And, but it, it was certainly not an overnight thing. Like it took some recovery and that was another, that was another uh, thing that I didn't realize at the time is I thought I had control over how much things affect me, affected me and how. If I was, if, if someone hurt my feelings, my way of thinking was, well, I'm just not going to let that affect me. If I had a need in my life and someone couldn't fulfill it, my way of handling that was, well, then I guess it wasn't a need. It's a want. And I'm just not going to need that anymore. Like just these coping mechanisms that were formed in me at an early age to help me in a short period of time (laughs) and then let go of just kept, you know, just stayed there. And I didn't know any better to try something else. So that season left. Um, but I was wounded from it for sure. I think I thought because it was over that I should be back to my whole self. I should have learned my lessons. I should not experience fear anymore. I should whatever, lots of shoulds. So lots of shoulds. And again, like most of that was happening just inside. So my closest friends didn't know because I didn't know to talk about it. So fast forward, full-time job, married, first kid, second kid. Um, And throughout those years, I would on a, I'd say maybe once every few months, I would get hit with that kind of intrusive, fearful thoughts again. I described fear as if like the mangy dog that kept coming back to my porch. Why? I thought I beat this. I thought I conquered this. I thought I, um, why is this faith problem happening again? And that was so tricky. It's so, so tricky because again, it put it, I kept blaming myself and holding myself responsible for fixing something that I didn't even understand. And shame, shame and blame does not lead you to asking for 
more help. It doesn't lead you to more vulnerability. It doesn't lead you to more dependence. It causes, it caused me to hide more and try harder. So when my, I was pregnant with my second baby and right around the seven month mark of my pregnancy, that fear, that dread, that feeling that like I'm probably like I might die today or my baby might die or somebody might die. That, that feeling that something bad is going to happen, the physical anxiety, just thinking about those things, causing my whole body to tense up the inability to just totally relax or totally unwind, making it even more challenging to be um, transparent and authentic in conversations that I noticed right at the seven month mark of my pregnancy went way up. But again, because it was not completely foreign to my life or my mind, it didn't set off any major alarms. Instead, it was like this again, mm-hmm. or I just kept, I, I kept relying on the same tools. I just had to use them more often and they were running out. My tools were running out. And I knew just enough about postpartum that Uh, I knew the stereotypes, I guess. I knew like the most extreme stereotypes of postpartum. So I rolled, I just kind of blew off the idea that it was postpartum or anything more serious or, or relentless than, you know, stress or whatever. So if you Google what makes you more susceptible to postpartum depression, I had all of the things. I had a job change, a move a death in the family, marriage problems, pregnancy. (laughs) I had all of them. But again, my mindset was just like, I can do it. (laughs) Um, I was by 2015. So I had been enduring it for a year, over a year. Um, I was still renovating a house, still working full time, still doing this, still that. But this other half of me, um, was like, yep, definitely going to die this year. <laughs> Don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm convinced. So there was this internal battle and I describe myself now. I was a person divided. The longer this suffering went on, the lar- the bigger the chasm grew between my like external self, the, the, the person that other people saw and my internal self, how I was actually doing. And I remember I'm telling someone like, Hey, Oh, telling my husband, Hey, sometimes I'm so convinced that I'm going to die that I I already think about who you'd probably marry next. And I've decided that I should probably write them them a letter. And Oh my gosh, this is what crazy people think. And God love him. His response was, yes, that is, that is what crazy people think. Don't think that. Hmm. And that was, those were his skills. His skills were, don't think that. And I remember talking to someone and saying like, um, I'm thinking about death all the time and I don't want to like, I, my mind feels like a prison because I don't want to be in here, but I can't get out. And God love her. Her response was maybe somebody put a curse on you. When I had a few people react poorly, I stopped talking about it. Like I stopped trying to bring it up. I remember my eight month checkup. So my baby was eight months. And I remember being in that appointment 
and wanting to, because I love my doctor and I, and I trust her and I know her, I wanted to ask her about postpartum and depression and anxiety. And I waited to the, the, literally she was halfway out the door and I was like, um, so what if, um, what if I just, I, I don't know. I've got some questions about what postpartum depression is like. And she just looked at me and she said, if you need to schedule a session with me, do it. And she left. And I did not. Oh, <laughs> I did not. I did not. I waited until the last possible second and I didn't follow up. And here's why it wasn't because I was ashamed at the idea of having postpartum depression or anxiety. It's because I was ashamed at the idea that I didn't and that what I was enduring was actually not that bad. And people and people who have postpartum depression, anxiety endure so much worse and Mm. look and like, oh my gosh, get it together. I felt the shame I felt was like, what if I get it wrong? And I'm actually just like really weak and pathetic. (laughs) And I never would have been able to put words to that at the time, ever. This is all stuff that like came way later. Uh But I had a person who I I think having that conversation, if I had opened my freaking mouth a little bit earlier, um, she would have been the right person. Uh And it's so sad to me now that like I talked to the wrong people. And got responses that educated, that taught me the wrong lessons. The lesson I should have learned in that time was this isn't the right person to talk to about this. I'm going to go find somebody else. But the lesson I learned was I can't talk to people really about this. I, I truly am on my own. And, you know, like I was so caught up in all that, all that thinking and feeling and way of believing anyway. And he, I was already crumbling from the inside out. Like the foundations of who I was, was just disintegrating. Um, so it was hard enough for me to be that vulnerable or that transparent. And it just affirmed, it seemed to affirm my, my postpartum beliefs that I was on my own. So, um, So I fell apart in a lot of ways. And even still, even when I had no job and um, marriage in shambles and seeing 17 counselors, it felt like (laughs) like even when I was putting the pieces of my life back together, my doctor, who was more caught up at the time, was like, do you want to try medication? And I'm still like... No, let me, um, let, I mean, let me, I want to do some, let me see how this counseling thing works out. Let me see, like, let me do it. Let us do its work. Um, still, I was still trying to accept the bare minimum of help. I was still trying to like, (laughs) I was still trying to strong arm as best I could. And then I had, um, a miscarriage. And leading up to that time of my life, I would say my mental health symptoms were more on the long, uh, more along anxiety um, than depression. And I would have like seasons of depression um, at this time of my life. At that time of my life, I it was both of every. It was all of it. It it was um, 
I didn't want to be, I felt anxious in crowds. I felt anxious in the car. I did not want to get out of bed, but I had kids to take care of. So you kind of have to, um, I didn't have a kind word to, to say about myself in my thoughts, like, forget it. I, my, my, my brain no longer spoke the language of kindness. And then I had a miscarriage and that, that sitting in the doctor's office, just broken every which way. And my doctor said, Andrea, it has been hit after hit after hit. Oh, I still, I still get weeks. Like so important what she said. And she said, it is time to bring out the big guns <laughs> and I am with you. And as much as I thought in moments leading up to that conversation that I had like surrendered this, like, I can't do this. This is bigger than me. This is stronger than me. This goes beyond my understanding. This goes beyond the skills that I was given and that I have learned along the way. This, this, um, this can't be, this can't be sung away or prayed away or preached away. Like something, there's a whole part of me that I don't know yet that is at play. And that was the point when she said, like, bring out the big guns. It just took somebody else outside of me affirming just how effing hard things had truly been. But for someone else to affirm, no, this is really, really hard. And not just one hard thing, but a lot of hard things. And there are things working against you that are beyond your control. Please let me help you. And not just me, but like anyone and anything. And at that point, that's when I was like, you know, okay. Um, I will take not just some help, but I will take all the help that I can get. And, and I will, um, rely on those people. And if they fail in some way, cause they're human, I will find the other right people. Um, so I'm just in the most like broken state, put myself in the hands of very wonderful therapist and a very wonderful doctor and good Lord, y'all that makes a huge <laughs> difference. Absolutely. And then I, I, in the last few years, have gotten pretty dang good at asking for help. Um, and not because I'm weak, but because I care about myself. Yeah, I care. You're human. That's I'm human. Yeah. And I, I have learned so much more about like my body and the mind and the science behind mental, like just how much of how how much stuff is going on behind even the curtain that I'm aware of. Um, and it's, it's a game changer. And uh, I started medication. They, the, that the medication and the counseling combined has undone unhelpful um, 
ways of thinking and being that I, that I have endured from a very young age. The growth and the healing that the combination of therapy and medication, like it just compounded, it compounded and compounded. And I can't, I can't, I mean, I tell my therapist on a regular basis, like you are the hands and feet of God in my life. And I don't know what I would, where I would be and what I do without you. And though that level of dependence is scary, it's also really awesome. Mm -hmm. It's really awesome. And it's kind of freeing because I remember, mm-hmm. so I, obviously everybody has their own journey, but I, yeah. I, I guess some of the same things that I went through in mm-hmm. hearing your story. And, um, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder as a senior in, um, college. And mm-hmm. I remember that same feeling of like, when I was prescribed medication, I had been so against it my whole life. And taking it for the first time, first of all, I took like two weeks after they prescribed sure. it. I was like, yes. I can't do this yet. I can't do this. It's spring break. I can't be on medication when we're on spring break. And like <laughs> all this like ridiculous reasons yeah. that I would come up with to just avoid having to like admit to myself that I needed this. Mm. And then like the moment I started it, I was like, I'm finally doing something for me. And that's, mm. that's, that's such a, almost that's like a universal truth. I feel like with, and I don't want to like claim that because obviously everybody has their own story and experience, but I just think that's such a like common feeling with, with people who are living with mental illness, but we don't get to talk about it. And it's like, it's freeing to hear other people share their stories and like share their experiences. And I just, yeah, thank you so much for like being mm. so open. And, and it's amazing to me when I go back and I'm really honest about the thoughts that I was having and the feelings I was having and the things that I believed, um, they were so much more wounding and so much more painful than I was admitting at the time. And I think a big part of it was just because I couldn't handle anymore. (laughs) They would just numb off Mm -hmm. and just because it's numb doesn't mean it's there. It just means it's beyond like it just got to be too much. And it's scary. Like it, it, it is scary to go from just talking about your feelings to feeling your feelings. So to go from, um, trying to just rely on the hodgepodge of like tools I ha- have collected in my childhood, <laughs> instead of relying so heavily on those, um, I can gather tools from other people and I can recruit the people in the, like my small circle to also build tools. Cause it's not, a, it's not just a me problem. It's a we problem. So like now I have people and they know me better and I know me better. And, um, it's why, like, I don't though it costs me in some way because those are painful experiences to talk about it. Um, I am happy to do it. That is like so profound to just come to that realization because I feel like that's, that's the hardest step almost. It's like going from like you're in this spot, you're in this like space every single day and like you're feeling what you were feeling, but then like 
taking that one step further into like naming it and like, Mm -hmm. no, like recognizing that you're feeling it and that it's not just like these like normal processes and normal things that go through everybody's head. Like Mm -hmm. there's like that disconnect. And then once you put those two thoughts to air, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Connect it. Yes. It opens up a whole new world of possibilities and Mm -hmm. healing is when, yes. That's it. That starts that process. So, and a lot of times it's like we're just kind of asking the wrong questions. Um, when I when I think back to younger me, you know, I think about myself at 22 after college, grieving absolutely like clinical depression. Um, I the question I think I was asking in the depths of me was, how can I fix this? How do I? fix this. <laughs> and I wish if I could like time travel, <laughs> if current me could go back to younger me and, and ask, pose a different question. I would ask her, why are you enduring this? Yeah. Why do you have to endure this? That I think that question would have put me on a better path. Yeah. And it's like, um, if you break your ankle, we know you don't deserve to be in that pain. We know someone out there can fix your ankle and we know you will get better. Uh, and and the same is true for our brains. We, we know you don't deserve to be in that pain. We know someone out there can fix it. And, um, you know, you're not a doctor, you can't set your ankle and, and you can't fix your brain. Uh, but you don't deserve to be in that pain and someone out there can make you better. And I think that's such a powerful message for people to hear, especially like younger kids who might be starting to notice that their brains don't really feel like what they think is normal. And, uh, and we can encourage those conversations and those questions so that, you know, uh, 22-year-old Andrea can become the healthiest version of herself so that she doesn't then have to have a bigger, you know, greater pain. Um, and, and that actually also leads into being able to talk about your experiences and your emotions with people who might not necessarily know what to say or might not have that education to know how to respond, but without feeling defeated when they can't respond the right way. Um, and so that's, a, that's actually a good segue to talk about one of, of our peer-to-peer programs that we support, um, which is Sources of Strength. And it has like basically like a wheel of the like tenets of mental health. Um, and one of them is like spirituality and like faith, whatever that may mean for each individual. Right. So um, I think that's, that's something that's a really, that, that part of your journey really stood out to me is like your journey with like faith and how that influenced where you were then and where you are now. And um, how spirituality has like been like a, an important factor of your healing process, but also maybe like where it might've made it more difficult. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm still sifting through a lot of that. That is a tangled web (laughs) that I, that I am carefully like trying to untangle because if there were any, um, not if there were, there were 
lots of unhealthy, untrue beliefs or ideas or expectations that I had just collected along the way that I thought um, were that I thought were like of God. And um, I don't think they were. So I'm kind of having to sort through like, what? All right. (laughs) How was I made? Like, how was I designed? What beliefs did I pick up along the way that are actually like that I need to shed? I need to let go of those. Um, What things are crutches? You know, what thing did I believe because I was scared? What thing did I believe because I was unsure? You know, like I, I don't want to go back to any coping mechanisms that were simply that, you know, I don't want to go back to those. I just because they're familiar or because they're safe or present as safe. Um, um, so I'm, I'm, that's taking careful work for sure. Because I don't think you can grow up in any, um, you can't grow up in any kind of like religious system or, or spiritual construct without getting some cocktail of something that is true and something not like humans sprinkled in. <laughs> you know? And that's not even accounting for like the individuals you encounter in your life. Like, um, I think even though I believe that because of Jesus, this is just me, um, that shame doesn't need to exist in a human being. Um, even though like what, if I look at Jesus, I, I think, Oh yeah, like you did, you are who you are. You do what you do because, um, so that no one is ever a slave to their shame ever again. The shame causes you to hide and hide hiding causes you to be less connected to the people around you. And that is the opposite direction that I think we were designed for. Um, and so I, I, I think I've been looking at things through the lens of wholeness. Um, because if God is God and God is a creator and he designed me, I don't think he designed my body to um, just endure shame or just endure pain or to to cope more and more with being on my own. Like if God's intent in creating me was connectedness and wholeness, then I want the skills to move me in that direction, not the skills or the habits that cause both internal and external divisions. Yeah. And it's what I like that um, you mentioned, like for you specifically, it's like your relationship with like Jesus and God and everything, because Mm -hmm. like spirituality doesn't have to just be like Christianity or like I was raised Catholic, Mm -hmm. but we all like have that, those like spiritual elements or should have those spiritual elements. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like, religious belief. I think Mm. that there's, there's so much like spirituality work that we have to do for ourselves as well. Mm. And I like the, the analogy of it being like a cocktail because that's (laughs) a a lot of spirituality is internal. And then Mm. 
we learn a lot of it from our, yeah, from being like socialized. We learn a lot mm -hmm. of our beliefs that way. And yeah. I think it's really interesting work to try to separate where each belief comes from. Gosh. So, and to be honest, like so much of, I think growing up as a female, growing up in like a more conservative Christian background, um, somehow I missed asking myself questions like how to ask myself questions like, well, how do I feel about that? What do I think about that? It was more like, what does God think about that? How does God feel about that? Or how do like the people who I'm afraid will judge me <laughs> think about that? So the whole, like the, when I, when I talk about the wholeness is like, I, the, the therapist, her best work is, um, reintroducing me and reconnecting me with myself. Actually. Um, yeah, that ties back into what we were talking about earlier. Um, like, like spirituality or faith is such a strong protective factor against suicidality. Um, and, and we know that and research supports that, but that alone isn't going to save you. Uh, no one thing is, is really going to save anybody. So doing that internal work, that's hard and difficult and, that, you know, I also, uh, run away from too much. It's, uh, that's really the most important work. Um, and so how these, like how these different factors intertwine is messy, but I think a lot of people have a this or that mentality instead of an and, or, or I guess, uh, just really an and, uh, but we can talk about these feelings and we can go to therapy and we can take medication and we can have faith, uh, whatever that looks like. And, and I also, I want to be honest about this too. Like, um, I got beef with God as well about those years of suffering. Like I'm not, that's gotta be a part of it too. Like if this is, if there are, we have, I have, there's been a lot of F words in my, my, for a solid few years, my prayers were more just like, was more cursing than anything, <laughs> but like, that's. I want whatever I have in me, I want it to be real and I want it to be authentic. And that means like stuff's going to have to go through the ringer in me. And I, if I'm not willing to do that, then I'm just going to have to spend more and more of my energy defending something that isn't working anyway. You know? So, um, so in even an honesty camp, like it's not just like, well, I got to go figure out what parts of my belief were wrong and what were right. It's like, no, I, I, if I got, if I, I'm mad, <laughs> like if I'm, I have questions and I'm mad and I'm not going to deny that I'm mad and I don't understand. And I'm not going to deny that I don't understand. And, and I think you failed me or I think you, um, it felt like you left me or it, or I was trusting you to, for A, B, C, and D. And what the heck happened? Like, those are real conversations too that need to be had. So I don't, I don't want to even cheapen it to just like a, I'm reading more textbooks about my, you know, like it's, that's gotta be a real relationship too. Um, but man, it is a, it is a tangled web and it's sticky. And I, and I think it deserves time and care. And I, but I also think for the first time me for the first time in my, in my life, I'm an equal player in the conversation as opposed to like, how do I fix this thing? Or how do I fix that thing? Or what does, am I approving 
um, is this person approving me or am I approved of in this camp? It's like, hold on. <laughs> and, and realistically, um, when I look at the work that I do and my counselor does with me, um, the, the, the healing, the skill buildings and relationships, like the, the reconnecting to myself, like how is that not the holiest of works? I, I don't, that's kind of what I'm rest in the faith camp. That's kind of what I'm resting in now. I don't have all the answers. I don't understand why certain things happen. I don't understand. I can't see clearly all of the beliefs um, and where they belong yet. <laughs> and I might never, I don't know. Um, but I do believe that the work that I'm doing to, um, heal and connect with both myself and other humans is a very holy work. I'm going to go backwards for a second. Can you just talk a little bit about, um, when you found your therapist, what that looked like, how long did it Absolutely. take? What, what were the questions that were important to you when you were out there talking to people? Um, well, I was lucky enough to have through my job, I was through my job, we had access to a counselor. Um, like the staff had access to this counselor and they kind of had him on retainer for, you know, dealing with trauma or events in the uh, company or community or anything like that. So I already had access to one that seemed to have a good reputation Mm-hmm. And that other people who I knew recommended. And so I had, so I had gone to him periodically. Um, and then my husband and I went to him and he, but I, but I realized in some of like my husband and I's most challenging times, I was like, I need to talk to a woman and I need to talk to a woman by myself. Like I'm trying to bring my full self to the table, but I just don't feel the level of safety in here. And I, and I got like, I don't feel comfortable to be a hundred percent honest. And I got to get honest somewhere. Um, so I just asked that counselor who I trusted, like, do you have any chicks in your practice? And he had two and I picked one. Um, so I went to her and I, I knew it was good. Um, it was going to be good and it was a good fit because she just oozed empathy just it just poured out of her she it surprised me things that I didn't think I was allowed to feel she gave me permission in the way that she interacted with me to feel um I mean there I remember her asking a question and I was like you're not allowed to ask me that <laughs> because I'm not allowed to have an answer <laughs> um but she she had a, she certainly, ha- she not had, she has, she has a mothering quality, which I needed. Um, but her empathy um, enabled me to be more honest with, to her and with myself. And honesty was also a skill that I needed to practice. Um, I think so, it's important that you allow yourself to realize who who you need, what kind of personality mm-hmm. you need, who's mm-hmm. going to let you be vulnerable and, 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 and say all those things and process all the feelings that you're having. Yeah. There were just good results. You know, like I, I, um, 
she creates a a place of safety yeah. and that's that's what i that's what i needed yeah so important to be able to feel comfortable and safe with your therapist and i think that's that's something that a lot of people struggle with if they don't find the right person right away i mm. think it, it that makes it easier for people to give up and uh, mm-hmm. not want to go back and mm. uh, yeah, yeah. that's that's in their safety mm-hmm. that's why i give out my therapist number on a regular basis <laughs> I told, I told her, I was like, I need to find her speed because <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like setting up like your friends on a date almost like if you, if someone yeah. to you and this, like, it's like, Hey, I think I need to go to therapy. Like it's like mm-hmm. dating. Like mm-hmm. you yep. need to like yeah. build that relationship and trust each other. And that's, yep. it doesn't always happen the first time and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's plenty, there's plenty of people, um, friends of mine who have gone, you know, through work to the other counselor, you know, and they're like, eh, not my style, you know, like there's, and I, and I think they get that too. It's like, there's, there's a dynamic, there's, I don't know, personalities. I don't know what all goes into it, but, um, I was lucky on the first try for a medication and I was lucky on the first try for a counselor, but I'm confident, um, that, if I hadn't been lucky on the first round, um, I had reason to keep trying. Mm-hmm. That was something my doctor said to me. She's like, this isn't a one and done. Yeah. This isn't like we try this medication. If it doesn't work, you're SOL. This isn't, we, we try something else. We like, it's just helpful to have a professional say like there are options. Yeah. And though it's a real bummer, if the first one or the second one or the third one doesn't work out, I'm giving you reason to not give up. Yeah. The part of you that says that's the end of the road for me, it is not true. Mm-hmm. That's an important thing to hear too, when you're in that kind of a, like state where you're like, I need help, but I'm afraid that this won't work. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't work, then I'm going to want to give up. And that's such an important thing for that professional to say to you is like, this one might not work, but we are going to keep trying. We are going to get mm-hmm. you the help that you need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And that's a good thing for people to hear who are maybe in that position right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It says, it says more about the relationship I had with myself. The fact that I didn't officially ask for help on that eight month checkup that I didn't um, continue to pursue helpers or safe people that I didn't like that says way more about like what what my skills were and my relationship to myself than even the people in my life um and I think one of the biggest areas of growth and healing for me was just recognizing that my well one that my needs exist two that they don't cause they're not a problem and um, three that they're worth fighting for. And um, that feeling will also positively impact your entire family unit. Um, so, so that your kids aren't going to be repeating the life experiences that you wish you didn't have to experience. Um, we're, we're kind of like creating a roadmap for them on how to navigate the challenges, uh, these challenges in a more healthy way and, and hopefully creating tools for your kids uh, when this you know, when this big thing happens, here's a tool. 
And so, yeah, you're, uh, you're creating a healthier environment for them. Yes. Yeah. That's an, that's another holy work for sure is like recognizing, um, and, and maybe as a helpful motivator when I'm feeling tired or discouraged because like it's hard work and sometimes, sometimes it's going, it's happening easily and sometimes it's not. Um, so when there's times in which I am not as motivated to fight for myself, it is helpful to be like, well, then for my children, because I think that's, that's certainly something that kind of bit me in the butt certainly was, was thinking that all of my symptoms or all the things that I was experiencing, or even the way that my thoughts sounded, um, were just me. That was from me. It was because of me. Um, and so therefore I had to fix it. So it, it has been helpful to recognize or to learn, um, Hey, like, yes, you are very unique and yes, you are an individual, but you are a highly connected human being. And there are things working in you that have, that you have no say in or that have been there for a long time, or, um, there's just no way for you to know how to handle all this. Um, and the medication when it started, when I, when I watched the medication start to undo things that, uh, decision-making was a big one. When I, I watched how the med- medication changed my ability to make decisions. And I would not have guessed that that was like related at all to the way my brain was working or mental health or anxiety or depression or anything. I would have been like, this is how I've always made decisions. <laughs> so to be like, oh, even how I was making decisions was influenced by anxiety mm-hmm. or influenced by this coping mechanism. Um, that like mental health, it is not a part of you. It is all of you. Mm-hmm. So Um, what could be a more important work to do for yourself and with yourself? Cause it's going to affect every part of who you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Andrea, that was beautiful. You've been so like amazingly vulnerable Mm -hmm. with us. And I think that's a really excellent note to leave on. Um, we are running out of time a little bit here. Um, but thank you so much for just like First of all, for being here. (laughs) Um, Second of all, for just being so open and honest and just sharing your experience and uh, where you are now. And it's it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about this episode, you can check out our show notes and access additional information on our website at 1n5.org. We ask that you please subscribe, rate, write a review, or share this podcast with anyone you think may be interested in hearing more about how we are changing the mental health landscape. Again, I'm Nancy. And I'm Kayla. And we hope you'll join us next time. You belong here. We belong